You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, hello, everybody. I'm starting us off this week. Excellent. And I'm taking us to space. The final frontier. Space. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I feel like, Kirk, this is off in your area, so sorry if this was something that you were planning that was on your list. Well, if it was, if it was, I, I was too slow. So. Yeah. Today I'm going to talk about what is arguably one of the most distinctive features in the entire solar system, Saturn's rings. Ooh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, why, why does Saturn have rings? We'll get there. Okay. We'll get there. <laughs> um, if you know, I don't know, I'd say an average amount the planets, about the planets, you know Saturn has a giant, very visible ring system, but also there are other ring, pla- ring systems on other planets, the giant planets to be specific. Um, right, so right. Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune. Um, but those are all quite faint and small compared with Saturn's. Uh, Saturn's rings are extremely wide. They're very bright. Galileo was the first person to observe them, although uh, his telescope was not strong enough for him to figure out what they were. He described them as ears. That's fair. Yeah. All right. I mean, you could see where he was coming from. If it's like very small and you just see things sticking out on the side. Yeah. Yeah. For anyone at home, like if you have a pair of binoculars at home, even bad binoculars, they are way better than what Galileo had <laughs> when he did all of his groundbreaking research. So, like, go use them. Yeah, yes. do try this at home. <laughs> yeah, Ooh. just don't don't look at the sun. No, don't, don't look at do the that. sun. Don't do that. <clears throat> oh gosh, don't. Do I mean, that. you could still hear the show, but we care about your eyes. Yeah. Uh, later, astronomers with stronger telescopes were able to figure out that they were rings, but at first, it was thought that they were solid or liquid, perhaps. Uh, oh wow! Yeah. yeah, most of our listeners know this. They are not solid or liquid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, they're cheese. They're cheese, aren't they? Uh, yeah. In fact, it's uh, Gruyere. Sounds tasty. Hmm. <laughs> no, they uh, they are made up of a huge number of tiny particles, mostly of ice, but also dust. Uh, this was first proved by James Clerk Maxwell in 1859, and they're all orbiting Saturn independently. But we know that uh, now we know that the rings stretch basically actually all the way from the tops of Saturn cl- Saturn's clouds out to 13 million kilometers. Whoa. That's a long, yeah. long ways. That's a and bigger distance than I was expecting. Yeah. Well, we'll get into why it's so big and why you might have thought it was smaller. But in spite of being so wide, the main rings are only about 30 meters thick at the most, which is astonishingly thin (laughs) that's crazy yeah uh yeah it's it's hard to uh, see them from here and they're only 30 meters thick at the thickest yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well they're they're like like i that people are confused by that too as you said they're most a lot of ice and stuff so they're highly reflective yeah Mm. which is why we can see them so easily okay 
So as I mentioned, they're made of lots of small particles interspersed with, uh, to, to the latest count, 83 moons of various sizes. Uh, and these particles range in size from smaller than a grain of sand to 10-ish meters across. Got to get a, a sense okay. of the range. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, however, the rings that you would see in typical photographs of Saturn or drawings are actually only a part of the story. It gets pretty complicated, <laughs> and I'm, I'm boiling it down a lot already. But there mm -hmm. uh, are multiple rings, and they're named in a confusing way. So they're lettered A through G, but they are lettered in the order that they were discovered, not in <laughs> oh, sequence. Right. Um, so awesome. heading out from the planet's surface, you go D, C, B, A, F, G, E. Um, I'm sure somebody could play that musically. Um, I was thinking, yeah, I had like yeah. flashbacks to music class. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh between F and G, there's a very faint dust ring called the Janus slash Epimetheus ring. So they're not all lettered. There's some some that have names. And between G and E come the Methony, Methony and Amphi ring arcs, which are sort of like partial rings, and the Pallene mm -hmm. ring. And then outside the E ring is the Phoebe ring. <laughs> and those are just the major <laughs> subdivisions. Okay. Yeah. Told you it was confusing. Second, we, we love consistency in our <laughs> labeling. You know, I, I studied anatomy last year, and um, it's this is sort of reminding of the way things in the body are named, just mm -hmm. sort of as they were discovered mm -hmm. randomly after various people. Doesn't make any sense. Anyway, this mm -hmm. is kind of like that. Uh, second, there are gaps in some of the rings. But they're not totally empty space, just areas of lower density. But the gaps do not always mark the boundary of a ring. Sometimes they come in the middle of the ring. So I, I don't understand exactly what defines a ring and not a ring and the next ring. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that's going to take some more in-depth research than I did. Um, but as I mentioned, some of the rings are not really obvious when you look at photos of Saturn. So the innermost ring, the D ring, which it basically touches Saturn's clouds, is quite sparse. And to the untrained eye, it looks basically like empty space. Um, and ditto with everything beyond the F ring. So the E ring, the E ring is vast. It's 300,000 kilometers across. And it's Whoa. very diffuse. And it mostly is uh, minuscule water ice particles that are spewed out into space um, from the moon Enceladus. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and then the even the outermost ring is called the Phoebe ring. And it's so diffuse as to be barely visible. And it's, I guess, a little questionable about whether it counts as a ring. More like a, mm -hmm. a cloud. We probably, we probably discovered more as we sent probes that were getting yeah. closer and could see stuff you couldn't see from Earth. So. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to mention this a little bit later, but um, yeah, there's one particular probe that gave us a lot more information. Yeah. So to sum up, there are a lot of rings. They're very wide. Some of them you can't really see and they have confusing names. But uh, the real questions are, where did they come from? And has Saturn always had rings? Yeah. And the answer is, we're not sure. Astronomers oh. are still debating this. Um, How strange. Yeah. No. <laughs> Here I am, all ready for an answer. Nothing. Mm. 
One theory is that the rings are as old as the planet and are leftover portions of the nebula that Saturn formed from. Mm-hmm. Um, another another theory is that they formed sometime after the planet did, but still a very long time ago from probably the breakup of a moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just as a side note, the entire mass of the rings is like less than one of Saturn's sort of smallish moons. I don't remember which one. I didn't write it down, but... Um, it's not like it's, it's a, very low. Density, yeah, it's not right? a ton of material. Okay. Um, however, the best guess currently is that the rings are surprisingly, I might even say shockingly young, only a hundred million years, which is younger than the dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. this is based mainly on data gathered by the Cassini spacecraft in 2017, which, uh, did an in-depth, <laughs> in-depth <laughs> visit to Saturn so it actually did a like a very hands-on, if you will, inspection of the rings. It, it did a bunch of back-and-forth passes in between the planet and the rings before it eventually dived into Saturn's atmosphere and burned up. Um, what but a it, way to go. It also, yeah. Yeah. It collected and analyzed actual particles from different rings. And one of the things that makes astronomers think that the rings are so young is that basically cosmic dust is always bathing things in the solar system and dirtying mm-hmm. them up. Uh, but the rings seem young because they're still mostly bright white. There's not that much dust on them. Uh, okay. uh, so unless they have some unknown self-cleaning mechanism, this points to a recent origin. <laughs> um okay. Yeah. Hey, you you laugh, but there are, there are some self cleaning mechanisms in the universe. So. Yeah, I, I wasn't I impossible. wasn't being it's completely another, facetious. Like it's possible. because yeah. I what? <laughs> My brain. I'll hurts. tell you later. <laughs> uh, also supporting this hypothesis is that the rings are constantly shedding material that rains down onto the surface of Saturn. At such a rate. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Astronomers think, unless there's some renewal happening, um, the rings may be gone in 300 million years. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the problem with this young ring idea, though, is that nobody has come up with a good explanation for how and why they formed so suddenly and recently. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's basically what I have. I'm leaving you with a mystery. Uh, they're still analyzing data from Cassini, however, so perhaps we will learn more with further analysis of that data or with further space missions. Um, uh, There's a a potential trip uh, in the works to one of Saturn's moons, so who knows? Ooh. Ah! Yeah. Well, thank you, Victoria. I enjoyed that, but I have so many questions still. Yeah. I, I have to say I really only if you will, scratch the surface of the ring system. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of information out there. And I had to, had to really pick and choose. Um, mm-hmm. But it was fun. Uh, and oh, who knows, we may come back to topics related to this at some other point. Uh, so we're going to take a break. And when we come back from the break, we will have Kirk. Yay. So, you know, we need to uh, take a little break and tell people that we were on another podcast. Oh, yes, we yeah, were. We, we were on yeah, another we, podcast. We, we love collaborating with uh, other podcasters and our listeners should check out the High Panda po- podcast. A couple of our buddies from over in the UK contacted us and said, hey, would you like to be on our podcast? I will say 
um, it's not a family show. We swear yeah. there. So any of the adults listening, feel free to tune in. Uh, High Panda is a show where they, they pit two animals against each other uh, each episode to determine who is going to be the, the, you know, the, the High Panda, the, the reigning champion. And we debated them on pirate. what animal would make the best pirate. Yes. I'm not going to give away who, what animal we chose or what the outcome was. You got to go listen to their show to check it out. But uh, they're a couple of really cool guys and we had a lot of fun on their show. So we wanted to... I'll give them a shout out and tell you to head on over and listen to High Panda once you're done listening to our show, of course. <laughs> of course. That's very important. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll get on with the next segment. So I first heard about today's topic back when I was a kid uh, in the late 1980s. And I was lucky Dating enough to have a pretty... There. <laughs> I, yes, indeed. Uh, I was lucky to have a pretty awesome grandma uh, who bought for us kids the Time Life series of books called <gasps> Mysteries of the Unknown. Oh, uh, yes. So uh, yes, if you're about my age, yes, there you go. All that stuff. See, Victoria knows. If you're about my age, you'll remember the TV commercials. They had like really amazing TV commercials. So it's your uh, and this generation's was a, zoo books. Are you going to talk about spontaneous combustion? I'm not all there's so many good topics in these books you guys you gotta check them out this was so like Time Life uh like put out a lot of serious lines of subscription based books about like volcanoes and earthquakes and and space and you know like history and all these things Mm -hmm. and they had this quirky idea to put out like this series of books about like mysterious things and apparently I actually read up on this uh, for this segment and and I found out that like the editor's like hated this idea <laughs> and like none of them want because they're like these are really serious like almost like encyclopedia type editors and they're like mm-hmm. you guys need to write these books about esp and they're like oh really Why? like so apparently they actually like did a lot of like research on like historical like people and things like that and tried to make them as factual as they could but mm-hmm. they're pretty sensational um and it was like a thing where you they're like oh get one for free and review it for 30 days and then we'll charge you every month and a half after that for the next book. And they eventually came out with about 30 of these. And yeah, they did books on uh, like UFOs and ESP and all kinds of and ghosts and stuff like that. But uh, the first book you got in the series was probably the most famous because it's the one that most people got. And then we're like, oh, stop charging my credit card. Uh, it's called Mys- Mystic Places. Okay. And it talked about like the pyramids and Stonehenge and places like that. And they were ensured to include like fantastic stories of people having paranormal experiences at all of of these locations. Um, but uh, so they leaned really hard in like the mysterious angle and were happy to exploit it for profit. Uh, so not <laughs> highly scientific, but super fun for a 10 year old uh, who was like getting into reading and stuff. And yes, I still have many of them. In my book collection, although my brother is a big book collector, too. So we have like we have split them mm. apart and I no longer have uh, mystic places. Oh. So we'll have to we'll have to arm wrestle for that or something. But um, I, I remember a lot of the things in there. And there was one mystery in there that I remember being fascinated by. And I'm pretty sure it was, it was from that book, though. Again, I don't have it on my bookshelf anymore, so I can't check. But it was a, a story about the sliding stones of the racetrack playa. No! Oh, yeah. Has oh, any of you guys heard about this? Yes. I have to take this off my list. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> Beat you to it. I didn't have it on so, my list, but I should have. So for some, if, if, those who don't know, uh, some background on this. What is a playa? 
Like a playa is a dried lake bed, uh, usually in a desert. And the racetrack playa is in an area of Death Valley in California. And way back in uh, 1915, Joseph uh, Crook was visiting and noticed something very strange going on there. There was these Mm -hmm. stones, uh, some just small pebbles or rocks. Some I might consider like a small boulder. Picture maybe like the size of like a small dorm room microwave or something like that. Mm. And these rocks were just scattered across the playa. And what is weird, though, is that the stones all have trails behind them. Yeah, they so do. So you can see that they you can see that they have moved across the playa, leaving trails in the dry, cracked earth. And they move thousands of feet and they'll zigzag like back mm-hmm. and forth. Sometimes one rock will move while another one nearby doesn't move, but often they seem to move in unison across the ground. And the movement of the rocks and uh, the trails that leave behind are what gives the area the name Racetrack Playa because there's all these tracks like racing across the playa. Right. So there, there were naturally many theories as to how the stones might move. The problem was that no one ever saw it happening. And right. so it, it clearly was not a frequent thing. People would you know maybe camp out there and watch and it's like watching rocks sitting on the ground and nothing <laughs> happens and Riveting you could come back and people might put a little flag there or something and come back a year later and it's still sitting in the same spot so like this was not happening super frequently but all of a sudden you come back the next day and like boom they've moved and you're like oh like what is going on here mm-hmm. they could stay put for months and months and then suddenly move and it appeared as though it was not like slow, gradual movement over time. Like it wasn't like you put a marker down and you come back and it's moved a millimeter each day. Like mm-hmm. they were moving faster, but no one ever saw it happening, which was super infuriating. And you have to keep in mind though, that this is in the middle of nowhere yeah. in one of the most inhospitable places on earth. And we've, we've talked about Death Valley before on the show uh, that it can get up to 135 degrees Fahrenheit. Basically, I think moving t- these rocks. Yeah, it t- it ties a couple of other spots, but it's it's basically the hottest spot on Earth. And it's not so much that, like, we know people aren't going there and moving them. It's more that, like, no one is willing to hang around for months and months watching these stones while they're basically sitting in 135-degree weather, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just pull up with your AC on and just watch these things in this location. So um, pretty much everyone speculated that it had to do have something to do with the wind, right? Indeed, the sliding stones are also known as the sailing stones mm-hmm. for that reason. Mm. But even with that clue in mind, no one could like plausibly figure out exactly how the stones were moving or why they only moved at certain times. And they, mm-hmm. they there was a lot of speculation was that it was maybe high winds, but people knowing that would kind of look at the forecast and would go there on super high wind days and the rocks were just not moving yeah just sitting there besides that like if it was the wind then there would be other marks on the ground and such too it wouldn't just be like these racetracks and there wouldn't be necessarily like zigzags and such you know yeah like why is it zigzagging that is that is kind of strange that all of a sudden the wind would just like change 90 degrees or even backtrack or something so Mm -hmm. you know and also you could you can go outside and you know get a leaf blower and blow it at like a you know, fifty pound rock. It's not moving, <laughs> right? Know. So this was, this was really weird. Um, so the mystery endured for a hundred years, and I, I had largely, largely forgotten about the, the stones and their mysterious movement until I saw a video come up in my feed from the fabulous physics girl 
also known as Diana Leelani Cowern, I believe is how you say her name. Um, so if you don't know Physics Girl, you have to check out her videos. Uh, she's an awesome award-winning science communicator. Mm -hmm. And uh, she recently had the opportunity to visit the racetrack playa and talk to the scientists who finally figured out what's going on there. Yay! And the cool thing is they actually figured it out back in 2014. I just never heard about it. So <laughs> it's a great example of why we need good science communicators because like the the answers to these mysteries don't always make it down to everyone who heard about them in the first place. Mm -hmm. So uh, as it turns out, it does involve the wind, but pretty gentle winds, not what? like a huge gale storm huh. you might uh, expect. Um, it also involves a surprising element to find in the hottest desert in the world. The solution turns out to be water ice. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa, uh, whoa. What? I mean, you're not wrong. It ice? is ice water, but ice, yeah. Is this so, like some I, weird evaporative cooling thing? No, no. It's it's probably, it's, I'll, I'll explain. So okay. uh, we, pr we promised strange nature and boy, you got it. So the ice is moving the stones in the hottest place on earth. Uh, <laughs> we tend to forget that while deserts uh -huh. can get very hot, they can also get very cold, right? Right. And there are rare occasions where the playa gets enough water because of like either melting snow or rain that like a, a thin, like um, like a pond forms in, mm -hmm. in, in at least part of it. Um, and then when the temperature drops, a thin layer of ice forms on top. Now we're talking pretty thin, maybe eighth of an inch, maybe a half inch in some places. Like this mm -hmm. is not, it's not like a thick slab of ice, right? And you go, right. okay, well that, that's not going to do anything. It seems really impossible that such thin ice could have any effect on these large stones. But so picture this. The ice starts to melt in the sun, and now you have liquid water under the ice. And the ground is nice and wet and becomes slick. All right? So that, that mud is kind of liquefying and turning into a slick surface with this layer yeah. of ice on top. And the wind starts to blow. And as the wind is running over the ice it starts to affect the ice because there's an incredibly large surface area. And when you have even a small wind blowing on a very large surface area, you get a lot of friction and you can get the ice to start to move. The wind actually moves the entire sheet of ice at once or like large portions thereof as it starts to break up all at once. And the combined force of hundreds of square feet of moving ice actually just pushes the rocks that have been frozen into the ice and just pushes them along the ground. And oh. you're left with trails behind them. The sun fully melts the ice, the kind of turns to water, the water dries up, and all you're left with are the rocks that have moved and these trails behind them with no visible source of how any of this happened. Oh, wow. So it's very cool. Conditions, turns out, need to be just right for this to occur. Um, and so just no one had ever seen it happen. And that's why it remained a mystery for so long. Mm -hmm. People have actually seen this happening now. Uh, Physics Girls video does an awesome job to explain it with like, visuals and interviews with the scientists and stuff. So I do recommend everyone check that out. Uh, it's just, it's so cool to finally have an explanation, like for this mystery of the nature. It's something I heard about as a kid and I had to wait, you know, 30 years for an answer. And well, science had to wait basically 99 years for an answer. So... <laughs> Um, I guess be patient, you know, with diligent attention, uh, we can eventually unlock even the strangest mysteries of nature. What Thanks. a cool story. Thank you. That's really yeah. cool. Oh, you beat me to it. 
<laughs> well, we'll take a little break. And when we come back, uh, Rachel, it'll be your turn to beat us to a topic. <laughs> All right, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, now, I want you both to think of just just name a couple venomous animals for me. Spiders. What do you, what do you think of? Spiders. Some snakes. Um, snakes. Uh, bees. Voles. Bees. Platypus. Well, okay. Platypus. So, like, most of those are, like, pretty expected, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, except for your voles, Kirk. Um, yeah, I mean, it's smarty <laughs> pants there, but yeah. <laughs> Um, not, not the first one to come to mind, even for me. Right. Um, generally though, like the group of animals that doesn't come up when you think of venom, um, are mammals. And there's just a few notable exceptions. Uh, you named a couple, uh, the voles, the platypus. Um, and I'm just going to go take that a little bit further. Ooh. There is another kind of mammal that you generally don't think about as having venom. Uh, okay. The primates. Oh. Oh, wow. Huh. No, I don't think of venomous primates. No. You are correct. I am talking about today the only venomous primate, the lorises. I am so excited. Oh, the lorises. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Oh. Um. Yeah. So this is... there's about 25 different species so i'm going to speak about them in more general terms um but this includes like the pygmy loris the slender loris and the slow lorises um they're generally found in the tropical or woodland forests of southeast asia india sri lanka but they're also found Mm -hmm. in indonesia uh all the way through, all the way out to the Philippines. And mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, though, the populations are taking a severe hit and they're generally listed as either vulnerable or endangered because they are arboreal creatures um, to, and they live in those rainforests and such. Um, so they right. climb really high in those trees. Uh, to give you a little bit of a description of the loris, um, they are a small primate ranging from 7.1 inches, uh, which is the pygmy slow loris, to Aww. 15 inches, uh, which is the Bengal slow loris. Um, that is the largest one that they ha- that exists, and uh, that's from head to tail. Um, okay, wow. So pretty small. Pretty small. Uh, they are. They have short, uh, orangish brown. Um, fur or whitish gray, depending on the species, all over their body. They're really fuzzy. They have dark markings around their eyes and often down their back. A very short tail and a round head with a very short face, uh, like a really short uh, uh, nose and snout. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they also have very large saucer-like eyes, uh, which help them see well at night because they are nocturnal creatures. So they're super um, cute, basically. They're, yeah. So they're super cute, yeah. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people, sad note, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people want them as pets because they're super cute, um, which is why, no. and they are terrible pets. Just mm-hmm. saying that, they're terrible pets um, because they're cute and such. Um, now, uh, since this is a venomous creature, um, 
What would you expect Dolores to eat? Other animals? <sighs> yeah, I would I would guess insects would be my first kind of guess. Yeah, so primarily they are insectivores. Um, so okay. they mostly eat insects, but they also eat tree sap. That is a primary bit of food of theirs. And they eat, uh, some of them are more fruit eaters and they eat like leaves and slugs. But that's not why they have venom. Okay. Is it defensive? Um, it is. And this is actually a really recent discovery. Um, so their bite is venomous, um, but they actually don't create the venom in their mouth. Okay. So the bite is venomous, okay. but not created in there. What they do is, um, and there's actually some research thought where uh, they develop this uh, to mimic cobras. Because what they do with their dark markings and such, they raise their arms above their head, like locking their wrists. So they can get okay. at a gland underneath their arms, like near their armpit. Um, right. okay. so they, ha- they have like... They have venomous <laughs> armpits. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, do they just like smother their. Pr- Get your head on my armpit. Like sort smother of. them out or no? Well, what they do is they lick their armpit or that no. gland. Uh, no. They get the oil out. Gross. <laughs> and they combine it with their saliva, which gets in the grooves of their teeth. So then they can bite down on whatever is threatening them. Now, here's the thing. Gross. Yes, gross. But you don't want to get bit by a loris for a couple of reasons. One, their incisors are sharp enough that it can pierce through bone. Oh. Ouch. Okay. Uh, which Bad will pet. hurt. And the venom is uh, strong enough that it causes necrosis. Oh. So, no. I was just going to ask, like, what does the venom do? Is it, like, uh, does it paralyze? Does it, like, cause pain? No, it it, it causes tissue death. That's it lovely. It causes tissue death. Uh, they have, Gross. So one of the, there was a study, um, and I got a, quite a bit of information from it. Uh, slow lorises use venom as a weapon in interspecific competition by Dr. Nakaris at uh, all. Uh, in current biology, that happened back in August 2020. Um, some of the 7,000 species that they f- were looking at, um, when they found, or 7,000 individuals that they found, they actually, like, had part of their faces, like, melted off. It, it's that <gasps> bad. Yeah. <laughs> so they were biting each other. Yes. Oh. Okay. I, I kind of got ahead of myself a little bit, but yeah. Um, wow. The most I, I didn't know if it was for defense against like other uh, other species. You would think least, so, right? Well, and I suppose it could be, but it's it could be. But wow. most of the things that get um, most recipients of their bite and of this venom are actually other lorises. Uh, it turns out that they are fiercely territorial. Um, like to the point where like it's really bad. Like there, you can't find a loris without ha- them having some sort of tissue damage. Like they'll lose ears and uh, toes wow. and everything. It they are very very territorial. They don't have big territories, but they are very territorial. Um, the males fight over territory. The females will protect their young and their food. 
Um, there was some sources uh, that I was, uh, there was one source that I felt a little dubious um, and I didn't see it anywhere else, but I know that, uh, so Loris's use, um, it's called infant parking, where they drop off uh, their, that's what it's called. I know, <laughs> I know it is, it's so weird they though. put their young in just a spot, like behind a bush or a tree or something, and it, right. leave it there and then go off and forage or do whatever and then come back to it. There is mm-hmm. some thought that they actually like oiled the baby or the, the young up so that way they would taste bad to predators and like help protect them. But I, I that feels a little more dubious to me. Um, huh. Okay. Yeah. But, but still is like an interesting way for them to potentially, I wouldn't want to be like, like shoved in my mom's armpit. That would be bad. Right. Get all that, would be bad. that would be bad. Although gross. this does remind me now, listeners won't know this, but just the other night, the three of us uh, got together mm-hmm. and went out. And uh, as we were calling it a night, we, we kind of made a decision not to walk down a certain street because we thought maybe it was a little sketchy. Yeah. But now I'm realizing we could have just all licked our armpits. Oh, and we would have been bit fine. In, yeah. Bit anybody that went camp upon. Uh, I suppose we don't have that, you know, venom in our armpits. So that probably no. wouldn't have worked. But if we'd been licking our <laughs> armpits walking down the street, we, I think probably nobody would have messed with us. Might have scared them off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would run from anyone who comes at oh, me yes. with their arms above their head, ready to lick their armpits. I wouldn't want to mess that's with a, those That's people. a good safe bet. <laughs> um, one other thing I wanted to add, too, was that uh, the parts of the venom, it's actually still pretty unstudied. Like, not a lot is known about the venom of the lorises. Um, the scientists have found that part of it is part of a component of the venom is similar to that that is found in cat dander that causes allergies. <laughs> okay. Oh, right? it really is poisonous. That's why I sneeze so much. There you go. So, but that's just a small component. So there's an allergen effect as well. But that's all we know about the venom and that it, it causes necrosis. So, which is horrifying. I mean... The the extent to which they're injuring wow. each other, it seems like the venom is a little maladaptive, but it it does, doesn't it? Um, I mean, yeah, you know, that it's uh, not everything in nature's got to be perfect. That's true. Nah, it's just got to work. <laughs> well, that's all I have for you all today. Um, and. Thank you. Thank you. I guess. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. Have a thank you all for listening. Thank you all for listening this week. And see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.